I had another Zoom call with EJ. She was in a really good mood today, looking radiant as always. Her best friend, Stephanie, is in the background doing some cleaning. This time, there is someone else sitting in on the call, a woman named Susan Goldman. She's someone who has known EJ for nearly 10 years and has helped her make prints in the past. Just another person out of the seemingly hundreds of people who seem to deeply love and care for EJ. EJ, I love you. I'll be in touch. Happy. Did you get my candy? I sent you Valentine's candy. (laughs) Okay. I'll, I'll come see you soon. While on the call, I asked EJ some more questions about her time working as a curator and artist in the Bay Area. Some of the very things that we've looked at in the past couple episodes. I asked her about Sarah Webster Fabio. Come around, Sarah. Whenever she was lecture. So it was exciting just being in her company. About the rainbow sign. And then you heard us mention rainbow sign. It was uh, a black home club. But we could tell that recalling these specific details from so long ago is somewhat exhausting for EJ. So as a break, we took a look at a documentary about her life and career that Susan helped produce on a series about women printmakers. Here's narrator Martha Jackson Javis speaking about EJ. EJ is an artist. She's a, the consummate artist and creative mind and person. There's a generosity with EJ Montgomery that has really permeated her career. And it has very eloquently and in such a meaningful way permeated the creative life of many artists. And I think E.J. Montgomery has left that legacy for all of us. I wonder if it's weird for her to see her life's work flash before her in a 12-minute film. Susan eventually leaves, and it's just me and E.J., and it feels like we're really able to settle into our conversation. I ask her about how she's doing, how she's feeling right now, and we reflect on some of her memories. EJ tried to convince me that James Baldwin lived next door to her in the care facility. And I mean, this really says something about what a life EJ's lived, that her living next door to James Baldwin really isn't that far-fetched. She tells me that they grew up in the same neighborhood in New York. And James Baldwin frequented the Rainbow Sign while she was a curator there. So it's actually very likely that they've met. I go all the way back to junior high school with him. With James Baldwin? Yeah. Not, not, not telling around with him. Yeah. Just his existence. And right. Yeah. Same thing. Being in the same circles, right? Wow. It's during these moments that EJ makes some really poignant and profound reflections on her own life. It's out there. People know about it. And people are um, listening to the podcast. They're listening to the radio that I've been making. And they're saying, wow, this person is so incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, They're saying that about you. Yeah. 
people are listening. People know who you are. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. People my age know who you are, like 20-year-olds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does that feel? What are you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I, I've had mixed emotions about me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to put together my life. Yeah. What's really been important? Hmm. Or not important? Hmm. I don't know. What are what are the mixed emotions that you're feeling? Do you think you could explain what you're feeling? Well, I don't know. I just, I guess, sometimes you wish you had done more. You wish you had done more, EJ? Yeah. How could you have done more? <laughs> How could it have been possible? I can't believe you feel that. I do. Feel that. I didn't move ahead like I thought I should. And I mean, do you also feel proud, though, of all the things you've yeah, done? I do. You do? Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, when I look at your work, I think this woman is incredible. I have to know her. I've never seen anyone doing work like this before. So that's how, that's how I felt when I encountered your work. I mean, you're, I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud of you and happy to be able to meet you. Um, I guess all the people that I meet, I sort of sit and watch them and get ideas. I want to want to help them with some of their ideas, mm. and I can't can't really open that door a lot of times. No, that, that must be hard. That must be a hard feeling. Um, especially because you, you've opened so many doors for so many people. You feel like you want to keep doing that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little hard to hear, but the gist of what EJ is saying is that she wishes she could open more doors for Black artists. Wishes that she could do more which to me was exactly the reason she's so inspiring. I mean, I look at her life and I see an incredible person who's done an unimaginable number of things to the point where the fact that I know her still feels somewhat unbelievable. For me, six months ago, EJ was just a person in a book, an idol, a myth, a legend. But EJ is a real person sitting in front of me, a real person who is still doing real things and is trying to make sense of all that she's done and what she still wants to do, that she wants to meet young artists and hear about their dreams. What do you feel like are the kinds of connections you're looking to make now? Like, do you want to meet younger artists? Do you want to meet like, what are the kind of people, what are the kind of things that you want to do? 
Younger artists, I think. Yeah. What they doing, what they want to do. Yeah. EJ's comments got me thinking about what it means to narrativize a life, which is what I'm doing right now in attempting to tell EJ's story. In making stories, there are things that we choose to notice and things that we leave out. The practice of remembering is active and selective. Details are selected and presented in a certain way in our understanding of the history of people's lives. In this season, we have explored so many figures in the Bay Area and West Coast Black Arts Movement who, in my opinion, haven't received as much attention as they deserve. Their traces lie in the archive if you know how to look out for them, and they are part of my personal canon. What and who we remember and who it's remembered by is something that constantly weighs on my mind as both an academic and a radio producer. Documenting history is so important to our continued existence and the practice of any art or craft. It's why I do what I do. I made this season of the show because I wanted everyone to know about EJ, about this history the people that she collaborated with, but also the people that she paved the path for today. I wanted to trace a lineage for Black artists in the Bay to look back and look around and know that they belong here. And this type of project right now, it feels more urgent than ever. Gentrification is displacing the people who know these stories, making it more difficult for them to live and create in the places that they're from in Oakland and Berkeley, San Francisco and Richmond. As we create our black art futures, we're going to have to document the journey. I hope that maybe this podcast is taking part in documenting the journey, a lineage, a sonic notebook, something that folks in about a hundred years can look back on and think, here is a piece of the story. In this very last episode, we'll be thinking about these cycles of remembering and forgetting, and specifically how they impact Black folks in the Bay. We'll be thinking about how our histories are so often lost, misremembered, or misunderstood, and how we can stop that from happening in the future by building our own resources for our history. We'll be imagining our own ways of remembering that give honor to our elders and ancestors, just like this podcast. There are two people that I absolutely knew I had to talk to for this conversation about how Black people and Black history in the Bay Area are remembered. Pendarvis Harshaw and Dorothy Lazard. You might remember Penn from a few episodes back when we shared a couple stories from his podcast called Right Now-ish. He's a writer at KQED whose entire job is to interview artists in the Bay and keep an ear to the pulse of Black culture. Dorothy recently retired as the head librarian of the Oakland Public Library. If you ask anyone about who to go to for knowledge about Oakland, they'll send you to Dorothy. She's lived in the Bay for nearly all her life. Right. 
Um, so Dorothy, I just on on while we're recording, I just wanted to congratulate you on retiring from your position as the head librarian of the Oakland History Room. Um, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but how how has it been treating you so far? It is sublime. I love retirement. I should have done this, I don't know, 40 years ago. No, I'm joking. I think everybody should uh, retire, but then we wouldn't have a society. And in our conversation about what it means to preserve history in the Bay, I wanted to talk to them about the unique culture here and how they both engage with it in their work. I started out by asking them, why do you think the Bay is such a Black cultural powerhouse? Oakland takes everything that's Black and makes it Blacker. That was a premise of an essay that I wrote. And it really looked at so many people such as Dorothy, you have roots in St. Louis. I myself have roots in Columbus, Ohio. We moved mm-hmm. to Oakland and we get a little we get a little more deeper in the culture, right? And this could be said about Huey P. Newton, who has roots in Louisiana. This could be yeah. said about so many people. You can go clear across the board. Keith the Sneak, his family is originally from Alabama. Like you go across the board and there are people who have roots in other places and they come to Oakland and you get bottled up in this place that has sunshine and good food and there are a lot of people with survivor stories from all demographics, a lot of blue collar workers who work hard and play harder. Um, there's a free spirit culture that's um, decorated by drugs, which I'm sure adds to the creative element. Um, there's there's historically has been infrastructure that has supported a lot of athletes and artists. Um, and you've seen the results of that. Um, and it's not just that Oakland, the Bay Area holds their weight like like an ant, <laughs> you know, like more than their weight. But looking at the the size of the actual African American population in Oakland, it's like in, when you compare it to that of Chicago or New York or you know Atlanta, you're like, whoa, this is yeah, we're definitely punching up a weight class. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know exactly what the secret sauce is, but I think it's a combination of more than just. I think it's a combination of the people, the place also that like the environment you know you have to bring into the fact that like the weather is nice and people want to create and people want to like be out in community um Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot to it dorothy alley i i totally agree with what pin said uh punching above our weight proportionately we're not a huge uh percentage of the population but i think uh, and I totally agree with what Penn said, but I think there's uh, another element to it. Uh, sure, certainly it's that gumbo that he uh, was referencing of people coming from so many different places to the West. But that whole migration story is is very influential to how we celebrate, how we observe art, how we see the need to make art. Because when people have pulled up stakes to move here. And Cheryl Fabio talks about this in her film, Evolutionary Blues, or or represents this in her film. You are getting influences from all over, but I wanna step back and say that need to relocate, reposition oneself for greater opportunity also plays out in art, artistic expression that personality trait that says, this isn't working for me, 
that in itself, the need to relocate, to migrate, to uproot and replant yourself is a kind of art. Mm -hmm. That migration story Mm -hmm. is an artistic expression. I don't need to stay here and be lynched or discriminated against or threatened routinely. Um, I can move. And it's that movement that fuels art, those who are inclined to make art. But art, to me, is so broad. You know, art, to me, is cooking. You know, it's not just painting or filmmaking or, you know, singing or something like that. It's you see the art in our in our cuisine. You see art in, you know, the way we dress. We, you see art in the way people walk. You know, we have a strut to us, many of us, you know, and all of that is fueled by not only who we are personally, but where we come from, what we feel we need to express to the world, how we can root ourselves to whatever community we find ourselves in. And when you get a whole host of people coming, and I'm not just talking about World War II, the Great Migration, because the Great Migration really started in the 20s. And certainly there were people coming out here, you know, decades and decades before that kind of uh, migrant spirit is an art expression, I would say. And so I think that's how, you know, now generations on and people are still moving out here, but certainly the big rush of people who've moved out here mid 20th century kind of laid the groundwork for what, you know, you and Penn and I know as, you know, kids growing up in Oakland, uh, we had a lot of soul. You know, that's actually what all that is. It's soul. Um, And nothing inspires art as much as um, uh, adversity. Come on now, Dorothy. <laughs> it doesn't. You know, I mean, how do you get the blues if everything's happy? You don't get no blues if everything's happy, you know? I asked Dorothy and Penn how they thought the current political and artistic climate in the Bay compares to this period of the late 60s and early 70s. And honestly, when I first asked this question, their answers were both somewhat pessimistic. I'm just uh, in my mind. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the early '70s and this time, where there was this explosion. This Black arts movement w- felt very much like an explosion of Black expression, Black creativity. Um, but uh, would you say that's I'm, different than the '60s and '70s? Like you were saying, there was an explosion. Would you say? this is less of an explosion and more of just like trying to kind of resist? What would you say? I feel like now it's more resistance because the, the, what do I want to say? I I feel like society's just gotten so much harder and divided and um, um, our our own community has uh, become a little bit less familial what I'm remembering about the 60s and 70s was uh, we were coming out of a place of, uh, you know, freedom, this kind of new feeling of emancipation and uh, 
that we are representing ourselves in the way that we see ourselves, not through some kind of Western artistic prism of, you know, this is what's natural or normal or beautiful, but, you know, the fact that we suddenly called ourselves black and that we were wearing African, you know, things got a lot more Afrocentric. Um, we started loving ourselves in, in myriad ways, you know, our hair, our hairstyles, um, you know, with traditional clothing from our motherland. That to me felt very uh, joyful. It, it felt very joyful and freed and also scary because, you know, a gate had been open. And, um, and we do see that today in some, I do see that in some realms. I'm sure, you know, you're much more a pen. You are much more connected to the art communities the young art communities than I am, but I, I do see that feeling, but I, I think it's all tempered by and tamped down by how hard society has gotten, how unlivable cities have gotten, how, how, how hard it is to stay in the place where you've lived all your life, namely Oakland. And so I think that does impact our expression. You got me thinking about, all right, so there's like the, that pendulum swing kind of concept of, uh, so you have this cultural revolution of uh, the late 60s, early 70s that you're referencing. And I'm thinking about 92. I'm thinking about okay. 92. You have this high water mark of homicides in Oakland. You have, you're on the cusp of like tough crime bills and three strikes and uprisings in LA around Rodney King. All of this is happening. And you have this, uh, cultural renaissance that um, somewhat is uh, spearheaded by anti-apartheid movements. You have uh, hip hop and what they're doing. And I mean, you kind of have this birth of gangster rap. Like, even that is a, is like, that's where you get the CNN of the streets kind of comment of like, yeah, it's gangster and everything, but we'll really tell you about what we're, what's going on out here in South Central or in East Oakland. Right. Um, and so you have like an arts movement that is on a high level at the same time as life is getting very stressful. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, what I experienced in my upbringing, nine, early 90s, mid 90s in Oakland was seeing was participating in programs that were funded because people realized the value of art. And when I say the value of art is twofold. It's one, we can actually get funding for this nonprofit. But two, these young people need um, a, a healthy environment to do this graffiti, breakdance, hip hop, you name it, you know. Um, and so I think there's benefits and detriments to these pendulum the pendulum swinging back and forth you know so where we're Absolutely. at right now you, you it's a hard time to live through like talking to my nephew about uh losing a friend to fentanyl is like it's hard and i'm like bro you got to write about it you have to go out and like create some art you have to deal with it somehow yes yes and so um yeah that that's just what's on my mind you know when i was growing up in the 70s there were community agencies, parks and rec, there was arts in the schools. There were all these ways for us to express ourselves. And I'm not, just to clarify, I'm not trying to say that no art could come out of, you know, pleasant times or secure times, but we are beneficiaries of a history 
uh, of adversity in this country. And we have struggled in many ways. In the 60s, you know, the art was fueled by struggle, just as it was in the 90s and just as it is now. Um, you know, most of the posters uh, in downtown Oakland are referencing, you know, someone who got killed or, you know, against police violence or something like that. So there are still things to push and the artists in any society are the ones to do that pushing on a, um, on a, a very public level, you know, um, we're going to see that art before we go to say a council meeting to, to find out what policies are going to be built. More people are going to see that art. Um, so, yeah, I, I just want to clarify that. I'm not saying that art can't yeah. be made uh, without that struggle, but typically, um, and, and we, and we need our artists during times of struggle, during times of displacement. Absolutely. We need artists in these times of struggle. We need artists to make sense of things. We need black artists to help us through these times when things feel so hard, when the pendulum is swinging towards turmoil. In thinking about these themes of remembering and documenting history, it all brings me back to a conversation that I had with an artist in Richmond a few months ago. I did a studio visit at a lovely place called NIAD, which stands for Nurturing Independence Through Artistic Development. It's an artist collective for artists with developmental disabilities. The storefront of the studio in Richmond is decorated with art of different mediums, like a small exhibition space in and of itself. I walk into the parking lot of the studio and I'm greeted by Nan Collymore. She's an artist and staff member at NIAD. She is such an incredibly kind and warming presence that shines on whoever she meets. She guides me into the studio where all the artists are working. I'm here to talk to an artist named Deatra Colbert. And in her own words, she's a legend at NIAD. Awesome. Um, I'm one of the legends for NIAD. Wow. One of the legends. When I walk in, Yatra is walking across the studio with paint in hand. She and a few other artists are painting a mural for an SF MoMA event celebrating Diego Rivera's Pan American Unity mural. They're taking inspiration from this mural and infusing it with their own interests. We're all sitting around this colorful stretch of canvas. Everyone is working on their own corner. It's incredible to watch these artists at work. Nan is there beside me while I'm interviewing Diatra. How long have you guys been working on this? Uh, we've been working for two months. For two, two months? months? Two months. Wow. For two months. Wow. Mm -hmm. For two months. And this is for the SF MoMA mural SF project? MoMA for the project. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much. And how are you guys like, kind of like, dividing it up like are you working on a corner are you guys all kind of working, I'm working on, on the it? corner okay. he's working on the corner okay so the way that we um started was by looking at the mural remember and doing some sketching mm -hmm. on some paper mm -hmm. with pencils mm -hmm. mm. and then um each artist would you know come up with their idea about something that they were inspired by you know that kind of spoke to them and the diego rivera mural 
In the midst of the pandemic, this is the first time that these artists have seen each other for a number of months. And you can absolutely sense the excitement in the air. Diatra is busy painting wrestlers, an image that has come up throughout her work. She has a real interest in sports. Uh, Nick Guevara's, he's in heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's, a, I, I, you can say he's a good, you say he's a good artist like us. Yeah. We're doing it for his dream. She's had, she has a long time interest in sports. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the mural depicts the, some of the athletes from the 1940 uh, Olympics. And so Diatra was kind of focused on that, right, Diatra, and your um, yeah, I should start working on the because uh, I because uh, I like sports, you yeah. know, like basketball, swimming, all kinds of sports on here. I chose I chose more because the um the sports and stuff, right. like basketball, football, all kinds of sport, like gymnastics, swimming, wrestling, and wrestling, yeah. and wrestling. Does does sports come up in some of your other work too? Some other work too, because I'm a big wrestling fan, and mm. and I like um, John Cena and all the wrestlers on SmackDown and Raw. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my favorites. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how long have you been an artist at Nyad? Or just about, I would love to hear more. Uh, about 30 years. About 30 years? About yeah. 30 years. Uh-huh. That's um, awesome. I'm one of the legends for Nyad. Yeah. One of the legends. Oh, that's awesome. One of the legends. How did you first get involved in Nyad? Uh, they, show, they showed us around at Nyad. And I told my mom I liked the Nyad. And they, they showed us around, was walking around the Nyad. And I told my mom, I like Nyad the best. I think Nyad is the best, the art school, and in and, and the world at Nyad on 23rd Street. This is my favorite, this is my favorite dream at Nyad for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Why, why is Nyad the best? Why is it your dream space? Because this, this is my dream goal for Nyad, going down to history at Nyad for 30 years at Nyad. This is my dream from Nyad. This is only gonna be my dream. Mm. And I love and I love all the teachers on Zoom and Nyad and I love Nan. Nan Nan's a good a good person, a good teacher. Mm. Good oh. good person, a good teacher to watch, you know, good people, mm-hmm. you know, good yeah. people, you know. Yeah. All the teachers like Andreas and all the teachers on Zoom and I they they all the best teachers and stuff. Mm. And Nyad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we've been working on Zoom. We've been working on Zoom since during the pandemic. And so this has been a real highlight for us to be back in the studio working together. It's been exciting working on this, um, you know, I think for the artists and for staff to see each other again and work on on art together. Yeah, yeah I've been there for nine for 30 years. And yeah, she's going down the history for nine on Zoom and Nyad. Mm. Can't wait till that day come. So, have you been living in the Bay Area for 30 years? I came out, I came out here about, I was about 15, San Francisco. I went to Wilson, Wilson, Wilson High School, McAteer, and Merida High School in San Francisco. Them are the best schools in, in uh, San Francisco. And because uh, I used to play basketball, all kinds of sports in, uh, in college. And I went to college too, way back in the day. And all them kind of my favorite, my favorite sport is basketball, because because Nyad um, 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 is the best um, best player in Nyad, the best player. You're the best basketball player at Nyad. Uh huh. <laughs> yep, best be- the best one in Nyad. Oh. 
team, My favorite team is the Warriors and the Lakers. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. And so your interest in sports, like it's personal. You like you like to play sports? Yeah, I like to play sports. Growing up? Uh -huh. um, growing up, mm -hmm. growing up in Des Moines, yep. And, mm -hmm. and how here, because I don't know why nine don't have no basketball hoop in the backyard we can play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh -huh. hmm. Oh yeah. Naya is my dream. It's my goal. It's my goal going down history at Naya. And then Andreas and all the teachers they're gonna help me make make me a dream at Naya and Zoom and Naya. That's my dream. That's my goal. Come come famous down in history. That's my dream at Naya. It sounds like you're doing it. It sounds like you're a legend here. So oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a good legend. Yeah. Something that kept coming up in Diatra's interview is her wanting to be remembered as a legend at Nyad, even beyond her time here, which feels simultaneously important and refreshing. To hear a Black woman artist insist that her work and contributions are important and need to be remembered. There's this refusal to have any of her work, her interest, her history be erased when the world likes to sweep Black perspectives, particularly Black disabled perspectives, under the rug. Diatra tells her own story. She's a legend. She's been at Nyad for 30 years, and she is the best basketball player at Nyad. She will not let that be forgotten. When Diatra and the other members of Nyad presented their work, poet and Nyad member Halisi Noel Johnson delivered a poem that was so powerful and perfectly gets at some of these ideas. I know again being black, again on the old two feet, again being black, my skin color, again being black. I am brave and proud of being black. Who I am, again being black, again being black. That's who I am. An African American, again being black. My blackness. In the meaning of a day of being black, I am proud of it. I'm standing being black. I'm standing being black. I'm standing here being black. I'm sitting here being black. Wherever I am, I am being black. As I wrap up my time on this season, dear listener, I'm thinking about how when I say our histories, these Black histories, have not received as much attention as they deserve, that this is a really complicated statement. Perhaps all the artists that we've looked at this season who were active during the late 60s and early 70s in California Maybe they haven't received all the flowers they deserve because of all the systemic reasons that we already know about. Artists like E.J. Montgomery, Noah Purifoy, Ruth Waddy, Richard Mayhew, and Sarah Webster Fabio. But it kind of also depends on who we're talking about here, right? Because some people have always known these histories. Black people. 
And is it not our voices, memories, histories, and futures that count? After all, in the last episode, Mildred Howard reminded us that black art is not one single thing. Maybe black art resists signifying or cataloging. And maybe it's not a bad thing if our histories and our lineages are not widely known by the mainstream. Maybe we'll just keep our archiving practices to ourselves. If we have a sense of assuredness in ourselves, if we know that we are legends, maybe that's all we need in our futures. Back in EJ's room, towards the end of our conversation, we talk about some of her favorite artists. I'm so surprised to hear that our lists are pretty similar. People like Sam Gilliam and Betty Saar. And she says there are some, quote, okay white artists too. Being a Taurus queen, EJ loves her comfort. We talk about her favorite treats, her love of butterscotch candies, sushi, and her favorite cheeses. But our conversation, of course, comes back to her love of California. EJ tells me she misses California. I tell her that California misses her. Do you miss California, EJ? Yes, I do. I really do. EJ is sitting in this room at the care facility in DC. But when we get started talking about her printmaking and what inspires it, EJ actually transports me far out of this room to Carmel, California, where there are colorful flowers and seaside rocks. It's as if she herself blossoms when she's talking about it. Well, I'm really carried away with flowers. Uh, and uh, in the Bay Area, you have a lot of flower uh, gardens. Um, and once that they sell flowers wholesale. Um, and as you drive along and see those, those beautiful yellows and reds and blues mixed in with each other, it's just breathtaking. Mm. And uh, my favorite spot really is in the Carmel area, uh, Big Sur, because you ride through the countryside in Northern California and you, the trees just fold over the roads. Mm. And uh, they're interesting shapes and types of trees, and all tall and strong and handsome. <laughs> also, there was the waterfront. So I abstracted things from the waterfront, like a, a rocky beach. Uh, and uh, moss, things like that, that you don't mm. see anyplace else but along the waterfront, and caves. And then the most exciting thing around uh, Carmel 
and it actually occurs in um, butterflies. They they come out just at a special time, and uh, they're almost on the same week schedule every year. Mm-hmm. The weather is nice, and they are just beautiful. At the end of this season, I'm left with more questions than answers about our Black art futures. Where will they start? Who will start them? Maybe the future is already here. Maybe it's the flowers at Carmel. Maybe it's a space like Nyad with Diatra and Nan ushering you in. Maybe it's warm beans or connecting with our elders over the internet being lost in a black man's desert dream, connecting, recording, and sharing. I'll be sure to let you know when I find it. Thank you for listening to this last episode of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. That's it. That's all there is, folks. This podcast is a production of SF MoMA. And this episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with production help from Maisa Plant-Graham, Erica Gangsi, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow performing as GOT. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. Big thank yous to all the people who made this show possible, to every single person that I've interviewed this season, especially to Stephanie Neal and EJ Montgomery, and to the SF MoMA team and anyone who's listened to a single episode this season, thank you for making my Black art dreams come true. I am in awe of this little listening community that we've been able to create. And I hope this podcast can serve as an inspiration of creating your own networks of Black kinship and creativity. Thank you so much again. This is me, Babette Thomas, signing off for now, but I know I'll see you soon.